connection with the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus, which is the topic of Lord's Day 14. So we'll read Luke 1, verses 1 through 45. These very first verses are especially important for understanding rightly the, the sermon and the topic of this afternoon. Luke 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the virgin, How shall this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 77, stanza 5. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith, and we use that as a guide for our study of the doctrines of Scripture. This afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 14, that's on page 528 of your books of praise. There the question is, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the last several weeks we've been talking about who Jesus is, looking at the different names that we use for him. The name Jesus, which means Savior. The name Christ, which we saw means appointed or anointed prophet, priest, and king, as well as the name Son of God. And we've seen what those names mean. And now in the next weeks we turn to look from Uh, turn from looking at who Jesus is to begin looking at what 
the Lord Jesus did and why each of those things is so important for us. Every week we confess the Apostles' Creed and we list a, a number of things that the Lord Jesus did. And it can, be, it can be possible for us from time to time to forget why exactly we confess those things, why they even matter. And so we're moving now from, from the Lord Jesus' person to his work. And it's good to stop and reflect right from the outset that the, the question of what Jesus did is critically important because Christianity is a deeply historical faith. It's a historical faith more than any other religion. In, in many other religions, it, it really doesn't matter whether the, the stories that you find in their sacred scriptures about their gods and their wars and their accomplishments, it doesn't really matter if those are actually true because they teach theological truths or, or moral truths about life. They, they are parables. They are myths. That, that, that make us wiser or more spiritually aware in, in all of those other religions. But Christianity is very distinct that way. Christianity is a deeply historical religion. If you took the history out, you wouldn't have Christianity left anymore. And so almost 75% of the Bible is historical narrative. People often, I've even asked the catechism students this, what is Christianity? And some will say it's, it's a moral uh, framework. They wouldn't use those words, but that's, that's what they, they mean. It's, it's a list of things to do and not to do. Others would say it's, it's a way of looking at life. One thing we often forget is that Christianity is probably more than anything a history about our world and about our God, a history of the things that God has done. Just for, for some examples, you have creation, a historical fact. 4,500 years ago, roughly, give or take a few thousand, Noah's flood, about 4,350 years ago. It's these, these things are all in history. The Tower of Babel, 4,200 years ago. Israel coming out of Egypt, 3,500 years ago. And the list goes on and on. And you can even think of the many lists of names and genealogies that you find in Scripture. That's often a part of Scripture that we, we tend to want to skip. And understandably so. These are, these are just names. But they're there to show us that what we believe in our faith is rooted in history. Real people among whom God worked, real events in history. And so the Bible gives us great amounts of, of detail. It tells us how many children people had, how many years they lived. Uh, sometimes it tells us where they were buried or stones that might have been set up as a monument that, that very often, Scripture says, are there till this day. And this is, this is the case because Christianity is very unlike any other religion or philosophy or way of life. It's the true history of what God has done in the world since the beginning and how he has been progressively delivering his people. So, so to be a Christian then is in the first place to accept a certain history as true. That, that history ought never to be reduced to simply theological myths that are designed to teach certain theological truths. Scripture records the things that God has done for our salvation so that we would believe that they happened because they actually matter for, for our lives today. 
Now, it's true, of course, our faith isn't only a knowledge of, of history. It must also be a relationship with the living God. But an essential part of that relationship, just like any human relationship you'd find, is a knowledge of the history of that relationship, a knowledge of what Christ has and God has done in the past, and understanding what he's doing now, and what he has promised he will also do in the future. Those are all parts of what it means to be a Christian. Well, with all that said, by, by way of introduction into this, this section of the catechism, it might not be immediately obvious why the virgin birth, and maybe more properly you'd call it the virgin conception, is so important. It's easy to see with, with Christ's death on the cross why that event in history is so important. The same is true for for the resurrection, we saw on Ascension Day that, that also Christ's ascension into heaven was, was a critically important moment in history. But the virgin birth is less obviously relevant for, for our lives. It's an event that happened in history, or so we, we confess, but we don't always know why it had to be the case. We don't know why it really matters that, that Jesus was conceived by a virgin. So what? if Mary was a virgin or not? What if Mary had conceived the usual way with Joseph? Would that have mattered for our faith? What would we actually lose? Uh, Those are some of the questions we'll be trying to answer this afternoon. The theme for the message is, is simply this. The Son of God became human through the Virgin Mary. And we'll see first what it is that actually happened in history, and second, why all of that matters for us. So the, the first point will be very brief. Uh, what actually happened in the virgin conception? Well, we know Mary was engaged to Joseph. She was still a virgin, so she had never had sexual relations with a man. And so obviously we know it would be impossible for her under any normal circumstance to have a child. Well, the angel Gabriel comes to her in Luke 1, and he says to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So that's the message that the angel Gabriel brought to Mary. But then Mary immediately wonders about that message because the angel forgot the most obvious detail of how is she supposed to conceive. And so that's what she asks him. How will this be since I am a virgin? And then the angel Gabriel answers that question, how this will happen. And he says it just in one verse, in verse 35, says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so the question for us is, what does that mean? How did that happen? And this is especially an important question because this issue of the virgin birth, a hundred years ago, was probably the biggest controversy in, in at least... North American Christianity, if anyone knows the history of the, the OPC, they used to be part of the, the 
uh, our, the Presbyterian Church of the USA, and, and if, if you know the name Skilder, that's, that's sort of the, the founding member of our tradition. The founding member of the OPC would have been J. Gresham Machen, and he's famous for these debates about the virgin birth. Because this was the issue that in an age of scientism and, and confidence in science and rationalism, the virgin birth was probably the most offensive doctrine to many Christians. Why should we have to believe that Jesus was conceived by a virgin? It's not scientific. It seems mythological. And, and many people argued it really doesn't make a difference in our faith. What difference does it make whether he was conceived by a virgin or not? And so liberal churches would have been defined as those churches that denied the virgin birth. And, and that's one of the key factors and that led the OPC to leave the, the PCUSA. It, maybe it's comparable today to the issue of evolution or even women in office or homosexuality. Those are issues that often lead to, to conservative churches splitting from, from larger uh, liberal bodies. But still, we ourselves, too, live in a scientific world. And so we do have these questions. How did this happen that Jesus was conceived? And of course, the short answer is, is we don't know. All that we need to know is told here. But there are some details that, that were given. And it's good in all of this to remember that the Lord God, we've seen this in the doctrine of providence, the Lord God upholds and sustains the universe. I said when we covered the, the doctrine of providence that the, the world is made of God's word. In every moment, he sustains it. He holds it together. He causes uh, one thing to lead to the next. And it's good to understand that. We, we sometimes think of the world instead as, as sort of operating under its own rules. It just There's these laws of nature, and we're not really sure what relation they have to God. But, of course, God causes everything to happen. He sustains it all. And so when we encounter something like a virgin birth, it's good to recognize God is not breaking the laws of physics. The laws of physics are just descriptions of how God usually works. In this case, God did something different. And so then it's no great difficulty, considered from that perspective, for God to fertilize an egg in Mary's womb. Now, there is one really important detail, and you can see this very clearly in the text. God did not just place Jesus inside Mary's womb. He didn't just put Jesus inside there as if she's a surrogate mother. And that's especially important to understand. Jesus is Mary's own biological child. He, he carries her DNA he is flesh of her flesh and, and bone of her bone, blood of her blood. And, and we confess that in the catechism. He took on the, the very flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. If God had just placed Jesus inside Mary's womb, then, then that gives us no indication that Jesus is indeed fully human. It just means he's, a, he's something that was put inside of a human mother. And so we, we can even look at it from a bit of a scientific perspective, so to speak, uh, and, and ask genetic questions. Because normally when we're, when we're born, when we're conceived, we have a mixture of our parents' DNA. Half comes from our mother, roughly half comes from our father. That's why we have our father's eyes or our mother's ears or nose or, or, or whatever. 
you can ask it, and it's a perfectly fair question to ask, what about Jesus? He would have looked like his mother. He carried her DNA. Now, we don't know if he inherited almost 100% of her genes or if God supplied the extra the extra 50%. But it's good to think in those scientific terms when you're reflecting on the virgin conception to understand he is fully human. He would have looked like Mary. He would have had probably brown eyes and brown hair. He's a Jew. Uh, And so he would have been recognizable as Mary's own biological child. People people would have looked at him and said, oh, you've got your mother's eyes or, or something to that effect. Now, why do, I, why do I say that? Why is all of this important? Because it shows us that Jesus is fully human. And now we might ask, well, well why does that matter? Why is all of this, the virgin birth and Jesus' human identity, so important? And that's our second point. Why, why does all of this matter? And we should recognize from the outset, before answering that question, we should recognize the church has always believed that this does matter. Even if you don't know why this matters, this was one of the first things that showed up in the Apostles' Creed. Even before the Trinity had been defined in detail, the church was already confessing the virgin birth of Christ. And so that should tell us at least that it mattered to the church, and it has always mattered to the church, that the Lord Jesus was conceived of a virgin. But still, we can ask the question, why? Why does it matter so much? There's been so much debate about this, especially in the last century, with more and more people abandoning the virgin birth and asking that question, why do we even need it? Why does it even matter? Well, there's two ways to answer that question, why does it matter? First, there's no question that the gospel accounts themselves do teach that the Lord Jesus was conceived of a virgin. And so that's one way to answer the question, why does it matter? You can say, because the Gospels teach it. And if the Gospels teach it, it automatically becomes what you might call a salvation issue. We sometimes want to break down doctrine into salvation issues and and not salvation issues. But if Scripture clearly teaches something then it becomes a salvation issue to believe it. Faith believes what Scripture clearly teaches. And so, with, with the virgin birth, it's taught in a number of the Gospels. And so, faith, true faith, accepts that as, as being true. We cannot claim to have faith in Christ while at the same time rejecting the very Gospels that give us the account of Christ's life and death. And we can see that this is how Scripture intends for us to read itself. You might think of what we read from the very beginning of of Luke 1. Uh, And Luke goes to great pains to make the point that he's presenting a historical account of Jesus' life. He's working with the facts. He says he's putting it into, into an order. And he's doing that, he says to Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so, even if, even if the virgin birth didn't matter at a doctrinal level, even if there was nothing we could think of that, that would be any benefit to our faith, we still ought to believe in it 
simply because it's something that Scripture very clearly teaches. There's no basis for for distinguishing between salvation issues and non-salvation issues on things which Scripture clearly teaches. If something is clearly taught, we must believe it. The same is true of any other part of of Scripture, any other part of that history that Scripture presents, including the flood, including creation, including the exodus out of Egypt. You might ask, why do those things matter for our faith? But they still must be believed because they're clearly taught in, in Scripture. Now, it's certainly true there are things that you, you could argue are not salvation issues, so to speak. In other words, they're things that genuine Christians believing God's word might end up disagreeing about because some things are not as clearly, as explicitly laid out in Scripture. And so Christians ought to still approach one another with humility, recognizing that we're, we're weak, our ability to understand is, is limited. We ought to acknowledge faith as we see it in other Christians. But whatever is clearly taught In Scripture, true faith accepts as true simply because true faith accepts Scripture as trustworthy. So that's the first way to answer that question. Why does this matter? You can say because Scripture teaches it and teaches it very clearly. Secondly, if we look at the details carefully, it turns out that Scripture actually does give us some indication about why the virgin birth mattered. And you can see that in the words of of the the angel Gabriel. Again, Mary asked the angel, How shall this be since I'm a virgin? And then he explains that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then he says, Therefore, so here's why this matters, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, the virgin birth is therefore the evidence that Christ is the Son of God. It testifies to that fact. It shows us that Christ is both God and man. It it shows that God himself was at work in the birth of Christ. He, He wasn't born the usual way, though in theory he might have been, he could have been, But God chose to do things this way to show the world this is God and man. And so it means that Jesus was not just an ordinary man with divine-like qualities, the way that many traditions have taught. The Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they they all teach this. But if he was an ordinary man, then he could have been conceived in an ordinary way. But he is the God man, totally unique. It's interesting, even Islam teaches that he was born of a virgin, and it leaves some difficult questions for many Muslims. Muhammad himself was not born of a virgin, and yet Christ was. And yet on on the other extreme, so so some would deny his his divinity. On the other extreme, some would deny his humanity. And and they would say that when Scripture speaks of the Son of God having become man, it really just means he, he looked like a human. He appeared to be a man with flesh and blood, but he wasn't really. The ancient Gnostics taught this in, in, scripture, or in the time when Scripture was being written. And the virgin birth on that front also shows that, no, this cannot be the case. He was born, indeed, even conceived of a human mother. He was as human as human gets, born from the flesh and blood of Mary. 
Now, it's good to understand rightly, the idea of being taught here with a virgin birth is not that Jesus was half man, half God. That, that can sometimes be a, a misconception. Sometimes people think that as if half of Jesus' lineage came from, from God and half from man. The way that, uh, say, a, a Dutchman and, and a German marry and then the, the, the child is half Dutch, half German. Uh, no, Jesus is not half God, half man. He's fully God and fully man. And so you might think of Hebrews 2, verse 17, which says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect except without sin. There's nothing unique about his humanity except for the fact that he is without sin. Now, some would argue the virgin birth is also necessary because that's how Jesus came to be born without sin. As if the sin that we inherit, our original sin, is only passed on through, through the Father. And, and that's almost even implied in, in the catechism itself. It's not said explicitly, but there are many reformers who believe that. That original sin is passed on only through, through the male parents. And, and since Christ didn't have an earthly father, therefore he didn't er, inherit original sin. And that's how he was sinless. But neither scripture nor confessions explicitly teach that. That, that sin is only passed on through, through the father, the male parent, and that therefore that's how Christ was sinless. It's true the virgin birth leads to his being sinless, but not because there's no father, but because God himself sanctified the flesh of, uh, of the child within Mary. So because he's God, he is sinless, not because he's fatherless, he is sinless. The Holy Spirit sanctified his flesh within, within the womb. And, and so in, instead then, what we see in, in verse 35 from, from the angel Gabriel is that the virgin birth or the virgin conception is a testimony to Jesus' divine origins. It shows what kind of person Jesus really is. He's fully God, fully divine, not merely a human being with divine qualities, and yet at the same time, fully human, biologically the son of, of Mary, with Mary's own DNA in his cells. He's fully human, and at the same time is the eternal son of God. And that, that is critically important for our faith. We've seen this already from, from Lord's Day 6. Christ needs to be fully divine and fully human, or he cannot be the Savior that, that we need. He needed to be fully human because God's justice demands that, that humans who have sinned must pay for sin. And he also needs to be fully God because only the power of God can endure the wrath of God against the sin of the human race. So many people in our, in our world would like for Jesus to just be one or the other. He's either a manifestation of God or he's a human with God-like qualities. But the virgin birth testifies that neither of those are, are the case. He is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, born in human flesh. And so the virgin birth then also serves as a warning in, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels. 
it serves as a warning to anyone who wants to try and read the Gospels without all that miraculous stuff that's, that's difficult for us rational people to swallow. It's a warning that you're not going to find that kind of Jesus in these Gospels. If you cannot accept what you do not see, you will not accept the rest of the Gospel either. Right from the beginning, we see God at work in miraculous ways. And, and so we see this, this is the Jesus who came to earth, whether we find him acceptable or not. The Jesus of the Gospels is the Son of Man and the Son of God, and he came to save his people from their sins, whether they thought that was an issue they needed to be saved from or not. And so that's how we'll conclude this afternoon's message. The Catechism says that because of Christ's conception and birth, he is our mediator, a key word for who he is. And with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Imagine if the human race was so perverse, so deeply sold to sin, so desperately corrupt, that it was detestable, the entire human race, detestable in God's eyes. But of course, we don't need to imagine that, do we? It's the testimony of Scripture, and we just need to look around at our world with biblically informed eyes to see that that is exactly what the human race is. The more deeply you, you get to know the human race, the more clear that becomes. Indeed, the more clearly you get to know yourself, the more apparent that is. And then imagine... What a holy God, a perfect God, a God who puts a price on sin, a righteous God. Imagine what such a God would do with that human race. But again, we don't need to imagine, do we? We have it in the words of Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so as believers, the virgin birth reminds us again, we have the joy and pleasure of having a mediator, being part of that corrupt, desperate human race, and yet at the same time being in fellowship with that righteous, perfect, holy God. And that only because the Son of God entered the human race as God and as man. As David confesses in Psalm 51, we are conceived, all of us, conceived and born in sin. But Jesus Christ was not. He was conceived and born as God, apart from sin, rejecting sin. And he he, he was born so that he could stand in your place and in my place before God and cover our nakedness and, and our sin with his perfect innocence and holiness. It didn't have to be that way. It's good to remember that. Remember that every day. God never had to save us. He never had to rescue us from the situation we were in, but he did. And that then is a miracle that we should never take for granted. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from hymn 23, stanzas 1 through 6.